Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I am very happy you're here. In keeping with current events, I have selected for this week's special Encore episode my interview with a gentleman whom the Russian government has declared a threat to national security. His name is Bill Browder. He is the author of a book called Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice, and it is the best book I have read in a decade, with the possible exception of the Keith Richards autobiography, which if you haven't read that, you should check it out. But if you haven't read Red Notice, 100% money back guaranteed that you will love it because it is a fascinating front row seat, the one that Bill had. He shares his insights as a witness to the opening of the Eastern European and Russian economy in the 90s, the privatization of those industries, the eventual theft of those companies by oligarchs and the massive corruption that Bill fought. And in so doing, grew the Hermitage Fund, which is a hedge fund that he started with a $25 million investment. He grew it to over $4 billion while fighting corruption in the former Soviet Union. Well, not that he didn't have a profit motive, but he had the opportunity as an investor to expose a lot of the theft and corruption that was happening. And that all went fine. It went great. Obviously, you can see his returns and how quickly he built that fund up. It went great until the people whose corruption he was fighting included uh, Vladimir Putin's. And at that point, he stepped on the wrong toes. And as you can see in the news several times a day, people pay a very high price for stepping on Vladimir Putin's toes. And as Bill shares early in this interview, he was detained and hoped he wouldn't be sent to Siberia and finally got sent back to London and was very grateful to arrive safely back in his home, and he has never been to Russia since. This book couldn't be more timely for those of you who haven't read it. Like I said before, it's freaking fascinating. I know you'll love it. I know you'll enjoy this conversation with Bill Browder. Bill Browder, welcome to the Crazy Money Podcast. Great to be here. Bill, I've done an introduction separately to this, so I want to jump in to tell your story. In 2005, you were running a hedge fund with over $4 billion in assets. You were a rich and powerful businessman with huge resources at your command. But on November 14th of that year, you were extremely happy to find yourself crammed into a middle seat in economy class on British Airways. Why were you so happy for that seat? Well, I, I had been living in Russia for 10 years. I was running the largest investment fund in the country. I was a shareholder activist in Russia, which meant an anti-corruption activist in Russia. And I had exposed corruption in a lot of the really big Russian companies like Gazprom and other big Russian companies. And in doing so, I stepped on some very powerful toes that led right up to Vladimir Putin. And so as I was coming into Russia on the 13th of November, on a weekend trip to London, I was stopped at the border. I was arrested. I was taken down to the detention center of the airport. And I sat in this detention center overnight, not knowing whether I was going to Siberia to be arrested and imprisoned or whether I was going to be deported. And the way that, that I anticipated was that the next day, if I was going to be deported, I would be on the Aeroflot flight at 11 a.m., back to London. And so I was sitting overnight, sort of pondering my fate and getting more nervous and more uncertain. And the next morning I thought, okay, at 
they should probably come for me if they're going to put me on an 11 o'clock flight. And I sat there and I banged on the bars of the cell and nobody uh, came at 9.30. And I thought, that's not good. I thought, well, they're surely going to need some time to process me or whatever they do. An hour and a half seemed like enough time. Maybe an hour is enough. And at 10 o'clock, they still hadn't come for me. And by 10.20 or so, I was convinced I was going to go to Siberia, not back to London. And 10.20 goes by, 10.30... And at this point, I'm like, the adrenaline is pumping through my veins. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is really not good. My life is going to be destroyed. And then at 1042, the guards came for me, grabbed me, and then frog marched me up to an Aeroflot flight, deposited me in a uh, middle seat, and sent me back to London. And I've never been back to Russia since. And, they, and I was so relieved on that flight because even though it would completely destroy my business not to be allowed to come into Russia a lot better to have your business destroyed than your life destroyed. And so I was very happy to be on that Aeroflot flight. Talk about being nervous, whether or not you're going to get called off that standby list for a flight. <laughs> yeah, this, this was all of an order of magnitude, about 100 orders of magnitude greater. <laughs> if you've ever watched the movie Argo, that's how I felt as the plane was taking off out of Sheremetyevo Airport in Moscow. As they escape Iranian airspace. You clarify you're on Aeroflot, not British Airways. So there's lots to this story before and after, and I want to get into it. But before we go there, I want to find out how you became the largest investor in Russia. But I want to go back to your roots first. You've got a very interesting family of origin. Tell me about your parents and grandparents. Uh, You can hear my accent. It's American. I was born in Princeton, New Jersey. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, but I come from a very unusual family My uh, grandfather, who was um, from Wichita, Kansas, was a labor union organizer in the 1920s. And he was so good at organizing the union that he was spotted by the uh, communists. And they said to him, if you like labor unionism, you're going to love communism. Why don't you come to Moscow to check it out? So my grandfather moved to Moscow in 1927. He met my grandmother, who was a Russian girl living in Moscow. They got married. They had a uh, couple boys. One of them was my father. And five years later, in 1932, my grandfather was tapped to return to America to become the general secretary of the American Communist Party, meaning the leader of the Communist Party. He ran the Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. He ran for president against Roosevelt in 1936 and again in 1940. He was imprisoned by Roosevelt in 41, pardoned by Roosevelt in 42, expelled from the Communist Party in 1945 for being too much of a capitalist, and then persecuted viciously in the 1950s during the McCarthy era for being a communist. And so this was my family legacy. I was born in 1964. I'm 55 years old now. But when I was going through my teenage rebellion, I uh, was looking for a way to rebel from this family of communists. And then one day I, I came up with this perfect idea, which was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. And there's nothing <laughs> I could do to upset my family more than that. So became a capitalist. I went to Stanford Business School in 1987, and I graduated Stanford in 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was coming out of business school, I, I was looking for a job like every other MBA graduate. And I couldn't get excited by most of the jobs that my classmates were getting excited by. I was sort of looking for something more personal and meaningful to me. One day I had this epiphany, which is that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And that's what I 
set out to do. Yeah, you tell the story about you fought to get to the BCG London office because it was going to give you a shot at working in Eastern Europe. And then, like so many things that happened, you actually got what you asked for. And that was a pretty interesting first year assignment for a strategy consultant. Yeah, so I was the guy who wanted to work in the Eastern European area. And like, and they told me at BCG, when, when we have something, you're our guy because no one else was volunteering. And so one day, the about six months into it, the partner in charge knocks on my door and said, you were the guy who wanted to work in Eastern Europe, right? And I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, well, pack your bags. You're going to Poland. They send me out to a little town six hours from Warsaw on the Ukrainian-Slovakian border of Poland. It's called Sanok. BCG had been hired to advise a, a failing bus company, uh, which was located in this town, on how to fix themselves. And it was a very, very low-budget assignment. And so they couldn't afford to send anyone out there other than a first-year associate. And so they sent me by myself out to this little town to try to fix this failing bus company. The, the, the bus company's problems were pretty straightforward, that uh, 95% of their customers disappeared, and they hadn't cut costs. And so <laughs> generally, if you if your revenues decline by 95%, you need to cut your costs by 95%. And this was a one-company town. And so my job was to basically eviscerate the entire employment of the town, which was really pretty horrifying for a young person straight out of business school. Tell me about your accommodations there in Sunak. So <laughs> it was really pretty um, grim. There was no luxury or even mid-level hotels. They put me in a hotel called the Hotel Turista, which was a uh, really kind of a worker's hotel. And I got there in sort of mid-October and and there was like a, some former communist regulation, which didn't allow them to turn the heat on till I think November 1st. And so it, it was getting pretty cold already there. And I'm in this hotel my first night and it's absolutely freezing and there's no heat and there's no hot water. And I show up later that day for my introduction to the bus company and the general director of the bus company welcomes me in the office. He, he's been looking forward to this for many months to have this important management consultant from the Boston Consulting Group to save their bus factory. And I noticed that in his office, it's, it's quite warm and toasty. I'm trying to figure out why it's so warm. And I noticed that sort of near his desk, he's got this really, this orange glowing space heater keeping him in the office nice and warm. And he said, you know, we're so excited to have you. This is really important work you're doing. Before we get started, is there anything that we can do to make your stay in Sanok more comfortable? And I said, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be in any way presumptuous, but this problem of freezing at night was really a problem. And I said, I appreciate it. I obviously don't want to ask for too much, but there's any chance you can get me one of those space heaters like you have next to your desk. And he kind of laughed a big bellowing laugh. And he said, well, actually, we can do much better than that. Um, we, can get you a, we can get you a woman to keep you warm at night. What I, was her I, name? <laughs> I looked at him. I looked down at my shoes. I said, "Space here will be fine. Thank you very much." <laughs> <laughs> the details in your book, Red Notice, which I mentioned in the introduction, and we'll we'll talk about more in, in the back half of the interview, is really an entertaining one, including the gastric delights of living in Poland. But the important part of this experience was that it brought to you a business insight in the way that the Eastern Bloc and Russia was evolving economically. That became the core thesis for the Hermitage Fund that you started eventually. Tell us what you, what you discovered while you were there. I was walking um, through the factory one day, and they, they assigned me a, um, an interpreter who was with me the whole time because I didn't speak Polish, and I needed to learn about all the business aspects 
and everybody spoke Polish. And his name was Leszek. And and he was sort of glued on to me the whole time. And we were walking through the factory floor one day and, and he was carrying a newspaper, a Polish newspaper under his arm. And, and I noticed on the Polish paper that there were these financial figures, which looked a little odd. And I, I said, hey, Leszek, what's, what's on your newspaper? And he said, oh, oh, these are the very first privatizations in Poland. And they advertised them in the newspaper. I thought that's kind of interesting. And so I said, can you explain this to me more thoroughly? And so we went back to the conference room and he laid the paper newspaper out on, on the uh, table. And I said, well, what does this line say right here? And he said, well, this, these are the number of shares outstanding. I said, okay. And uh, this line, and he said, that's the share price at which the government is selling the shares. And I multiplied the uh, two lines together and, and that came up with a market value or market capitalization of the company of $80 million based on the conversion of Polish currency. And then we went down to the next line and I said, what does this line say? He says, um, net profit. I, I said, no, it couldn't be. I said, read, read it out. And he said, net profit. And that, that line was um, $160 million. <laughs> so, so the company was sell, had a value of $80 million and the previous year's net profit was $160 million. Sign me up. You know, I'm not a financial expert or anything at this point. I'm just like a newly minted MBA. I don't know anything about anything, really. But I, I knew enough to know that, like, if you're investing in a company, you can buy it at one half of one year's earnings. That's got to be a good deal. And so I got kind of excited. And I, I couldn't sleep that night <laughs> and the next night. And, and I decided that, isn't this what you go to business school for, to, like, take advantage of these types of business opportunities? And so I decided I was going to... Um, go all in and invest in this stuff. And so I had a total life savings of $2,000 and I had it with me in the form of traveler's checks. And so I went down and I cashed the traveler's checks in. And then we, Leszek and I went to the post office and I converted the money to Polish currency. And then he helped me fill out the forms uh, for the privatization. And I invested my life savings in this company at uh, one half of one year's earnings. And then uh, I eventually finished my assignment at this bus factory. Thankfully, they didn't take my advice, which was to fire a whole bunch of people, which I didn't really want them to accept anyways, but that's what I was hired to do. But anyways, uh, about a year later, my uh, $2,000 had gone up 10 times. My very first investment in my life was a 10-bagger. And for anybody who's ever had a 10-bagger, you'll know that when you have that experience, it releases a certain chemical in your stomach. And you want to repeat that experience again and again and again. For me, that was the aha moment, the light bulb moment when I said, okay, now I know what I want to do with my life. I want to invest in privatizations in Eastern Europe because this is crazy. And that's what I set out to do. And I ended up going to Russia to set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund. Can you explain what privatization meant and the process that was going on over there at the time? Sure. In order for Russia to go from communism to capitalism, they decided that they were going to give everything away for free. So the state owned all the property and they wanted to transfer that property to people. And they thought if they owned shares and owned companies, then they would become capitalists and then the country couldn't go back to communism. And so they went through this thing called the mass privatization program. And the mass privatization program uh, had a number of different features, but the most interesting feature 
was something called the voucher privatization program. The voucher privatization program, they gave away uh, a physical voucher to each person in the country. And at the time, the population was 150 million. So they gave away 150 million vouchers. And the vouchers began trading on a secondary market. And they started trading for about $20 each. And so if you did the math, you multiply $20 times 150 million people, and that gets you to $3 billion worth of vouchers in circulation. And that $3 billion of vouchers in circulation was exchangeable for 30% of the share capital of all Russian companies, which meant that the market capitalization of Russia, the entire country in 1992, was $10 billion. So just to give you some perspective here, this is a country with 35% of the world's natural gas, 10% of the world's oil, 10% of the world's steel, 10% of the world's aluminum. There's electricity companies and car companies and fertilizer companies and banks and everything. The entire country you could buy for $10 billion. At that time, you couldn't buy a mid-sized U.S. oil company for $10 billion. You could buy the entire country of Russia for $10 billion. So when you see this opportunity that few other people are seeing, what were the emotions like that you were experiencing at the time? Well, remember, I had this experience of having a 10-bagger in Poland. I mean, this was this was like that on steroids. I mean, this was much cheaper than Poland. I mean, uh, we were offered shares and companies at like a 99.7% discount to the comparable value in the West per barrel of oil reserves or per unit of steel production or whatever. And so it was just like, I mean, it was a gold rush, free money, giving it away for free. And literally you could buy something on a Monday and nobody would know about it. And then, you know, you, you could tell a few people what it is. And and by Friday, it's trading at five times the price you paid on Monday. So these huge financial anomalies are just sitting out there for the taking. What can go wrong with those kinds of deals? The basic risk reward at the beginning of the Russian market was very straightforward. If you're buying something at a 99.7% discount and they don't take it away from you, then probably as things begin to go from total chaos to just crazy, the transition from horrible to bad, you can make 10 times your money. And so the risk reward is this. Either they're going to take it away from you, in which case you lose all your money, or they don't take it away from you and you make 10 times your money. And I would say 50-50 on either side. And so mm-hmm. using simple math, that gets you to an expected value of 450%. In other words, <laughs> wow. and so- That's still a pretty good return. Well, so the idea is that you don't have to invest a lot of money in this because it could go to zero but you certainly want to have a little bit of money invested in this because you don't get that kind of expected return anywhere, really. And so that was the risk reward that I explained to investors. And most people said, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. It's Russia. No way. I'm not doing it. But occasionally a smart person would come along and say, well, okay, I'll I'll give you 1% of my portfolio to invest in this. And if 1% turns into 10%, that's meaningful. And if 1% goes to zero, well, not ideal, but it'll be just like a slightly underperforming year, uh, I'll take that risk. And that was how I ended up building up my investment management business in Russia. So this is not an investment show per se. So I'll just recommend listeners to read the book, Red Notice, 
because the stories you talk about working for Robert Maxwell, for Solomon Brothers to raise capital in Russia and then breaking out on your own are really interesting. But let's just cut to the part where you've got real assets and you're in Moscow and you're trying to figure out how to allocate them. It's the Wild West to the nth degree at that time. Where did you start? It was really crazy because the, the winners were the people who showed up. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they literally had thousands of companies and nobody knew anything about them. There was no financial information. And so, you know, you show up at a company and you ask them, how many shares do you have? Um, you know, what was your profits? What is the size of your operations? And, you know, they would tell you some stuff and, and you're looking at it thinking, well, this is, a, how could this be? You know, this company is like as big as Exxon <laughs> and it's worth a hundred million dollars. Were they forthright with you when you'd go talk to them? No, they, everyone was lying and they didn't have an incentive to over, to, so they, it wasn't like they made money by, by inflating the values of anything. So sometimes people would lie to you. A lot of times no one wanted to answer any questions because in Russia, you know, the, the, during the KGB times, a- answering questions could only get you imprisoned or killed. But, and so it's hard to get straight answers from people. But, you know, I started to build up a network of people who could tell me things. I found government departments that collected information. I found different people who knew things. And it was like being a private detective, just trying to figure the stuff out. But it wasn't that hard. And literally, the, the, you know, the winner was the guy who just showed up. And because it was so crazy then, and, and lots of violence on the streets and stuff like that, most people didn't want to show up. Most people, to the extent that anyone wanted to invest in Russia, they were doing it from a distance from New York or London or Geneva. And I was in Moscow. And so, um, you know, I, I had a driver who was armed and we'd drive around and go to meetings and ask questions, get answers. And, you know, it was just unbelievable. In the first 18 months of my fund's operations, we went up 850%. The fund went up wow. 850%. I was the best performing fund in the world in 1997. 25 million to whatever 25 million times eight is. Well, and, and then we also got new money coming in at the same time. And so we went from 25 million to a billion over 18 months. And I went from Gosh. one of the most successful launches of an investment fund in the history of investment funds. And I was all of like 31 years old when, <laughs> by the time we got to a billion dollars, it was unbelievable. What's going on in your head at that point as a young guy? Were you feeling your oats? Well, you know, it's interesting because it was all happening so fast. It was like riding a dirt bike on a really rough road. Nothing was going through my head other than holding on to the handlebars and just trying to stay afloat and just not getting knocked over. I mean, literally, I, I mean, you know, if I, if, I, if I went for a trip to London and missed two days of work, I could lose, lose out on, you know, $50 million of upside. I mean, it was just crazy. I would just, you know, you just glued to, to the, you know, I'd start in the morning at eight o'clock, go to 11 o'clock at night, take calls all of the day. You know, it's just... Just, I didn't have any moments to think about anything. I had, there was no moment to reflect on any of it. I was just trying to uh, take advantage of the opportunity, you know, make hay while the sun is shining. And we made a lot of hay. You say at one point in your book, you were evaluating a stake in a second tier oil company. When you saw the numbers, you had this greedy tingling inside of you. Were you aware of that as a warning sign or were you conscious of maybe getting off on that instinct more than you should have? Well, I, I, um, that was the instinct that got me into all the good things I got into. But I mean, in that particular situation, there was an oil company called Sedanco, which was owned 96% by one oligarch. And it was really, really obviously cheap. And it was so clear to me that it was obviously cheap. And it turned out I was right because at a year after I bought it, I, I bought $11 million with this, of these shares. And, and a year after I bought it, the oligarch who owned 96% sold 10 of his 96% at 10 times the price that I had paid for my shares. 
And so it was clear that, that I, I mean, I was, it was a real sort of home run, both in terms of the performance and in terms of the amount of money I invested in it. So we made like a hundred million bucks, but the um, oligarch uh, who ran the company had this really weird psychology, which was, he wasn't celebrating his success. He was eyeing the fact that somehow I had made money alongside him and he hadn't given me permission. So he organized a complicated scheme to basically steal most of the money that I had made and put that scheme together. And that was my first big fight with a Russian oligarch. I ended up hiring 15 bodyguards. And whenever I went around town, I would have a lead car and a lag car and a sidecar and all heavily armed guys. And, and I went to war with this oligarch and we first publicized all of his misdeeds. I went to all the other investors who we had done business with and told them how we were being ripped off. I went to the securities regulator and created this whole big public scandal. It really whirled out of control for him. And amazingly, unusually, and good for me at the time, I actually won. The securities regulator canceled a convertible bond issue that he had organized to try to squeeze me out. And that was something which changed my life forever because I thought, wait a second, these oligarchs are not as, as powerful and, and completely overwhelming as, as everybody thought. And here I am, a sort of nobody, and I, I actually won a war with an oligarch. I can do this. And so I started to take on other oligarchs, and that was uh, when I started uh, flying too close to the sun. How would you describe your risk profile? You're just a regular MBA from Chicago. You sound like a normal guy. Are you risk tolerant or risk seeking in the rest of your life? No, not at all. I, um, I don't hang glide, parachute, bungee jump, or any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm quite uh, careful, actually. The, um, but basically what happened was, you know, I went to Russia for these, these strange series of uh, discoveries and events. And once I got there, it was all very incremental from that point on. You know, each thing happened, which led me to another thing, to another thing, you know. And, and so it wasn't like I was seeking out risk, but at the same time, I had a lot to lose at that point. I built up a big business. I had a lot of profits that they were trying to take away from me. And um, I felt both from a fiduciary standpoint, I was responsible for my investors' money and, and from a moral standpoint that these people shouldn't be allowed to do this, that I just wasn't going to allow them to get away with it. And so I, I took them on. And now it, one could argue that... I have a certain type of character which is not like a regular person because my character brought me to Russia in the first place. Any normal person wouldn't have gone there in the first place. And so in a certain way, my character is one where I've had to kind of sand off all of my risk sensors to get involved because if I had them all fully operational, I wouldn't have gone to Russia because anyone with fully operational risk sensors didn't go to Russia. I mean, I know you said that you wanted to be a capitalist in Russia, like your grandfather was a uh, communist in a capitalist society, but was there a, did it just seem like the wild West and the wild West seemed like the place to be, or was there money to be made or did it just make sense to go over there and try to figure out a puzzle? Well, I, I've never been motivated by money per se. I, I, I'm not a person who buys sports cars and flies in private jets and yachts and all this kind of stuff. For me, it was more, it was like a, you know, discovering adventure of new frontier, uh, you know, a place where I could prove myself, where nobody knew more than me. We were all starting at ground zero. Nobody had any more experience. There was no establishment. I could quickly become king of the hill. There's an expression, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And, and I knew more about Russian 
equities than anybody in the world at that time. And, you know, I was, you know, very young, but I, but I was, uh, you know, I was the king of the hill. So you conject at some point in the book that your early successes taking on these oligarchs have to do with the fact that you were taking on people who were Putin's enemies. But at a certain point, that vector turned around and things started to go bad. What was the first warning sign? Well, the thing that changed everything was that when Putin came into power, he was president of the presidential administration of Russia, but he wasn't really the president of Russia. What I mean by that is that all these other people had illegally, informally usurped the power of the presidency for their own benefit, these oligarchs, these rich guys. They had bribed people and they were informally hiring police officers to work for them on their own and army generals and members of the parliament and all sorts of stuff. And so what that meant was that when Putin came in, he didn't have all the power he wanted and he he wanted to have it back in the presidency. And so for about four years, we had an alignment of interests where he was fighting with the same guys I was fighting with. The oligarchs were stealing power from him and they were stealing money from me. And so during that time, he was actually on my side as I was fighting with these oligarchs, which is actually one of the reasons why I succeeded in a lot of my conflicts was because I had this strange alignment of interests. And, and I should point out, I don't know Putin. I haven't met him. We didn't talk about things, but um, we had an alignment of interests. However, he decided at the end of 2003 that he was going to win his war with the oligarchs. And in order to win his war with the oligarchs, he arrested the richest oligarch in Russia, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He arrested him off of his private jet in Siberia, brought him back to Moscow, put him in, in a um, courtroom on trial. And in the courtroom, they put him in a cage and they allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. Now, imagine you're the 17th richest person in Russia. You're on your yacht. It's in the south of France. You um, finish up with your mistress in the bedroom. You walk out to the living room. You flick on CNN. And there you see a guy far richer, far smarter, far more powerful than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? One by one by one, the oligarchs went to Putin in the, the, when, after Hordakovsky was convicted and sent to jail. And they said, what do we have to do so we don't sit in a cage, Vladimir? And he said, 50%. Not 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, but 50% for Vladimir Putin. And that was the moment that Vladimir Putin became the biggest oligarch in Russia. And I would estimate to be the richest man in the world. So what does that have to do with Bill Browder and Hermitage Capital? Well, remember, before that moment, our interests were aligned. We were fighting sort of on the same side of the barricade. After that, I was continuing to fight with the oligarchs who continued to steal. Instead of me fighting with oligarchs who were fighting with Putin, I was fighting with oligarchs who were holding Putin's own economic interests. And so I was going after, effectively going after Putin's 50%. And he didn't like that. So in November 13th, um, 2005, as I was flying back to Moscow from a weekend trip to London, I was stopped at the airport, detained, uh, kept overnight, and then deported. And that was the beginning of the most horrific nightmare you could ever imagine. Besides getting locked up, how do you know they're coming after you at this point? 
I didn't know, but I also knew that when the Russians go after you, they don't tend to do so mildly. They tend to do so with extreme prejudice. Mm -hmm. And being expelled was a pretty mild sanction compared to what they could do. And so first thing I did was try to protect myself. I evacuated all of my staff from the country um, and their independents. And once I got them out, we then did a quick and quiet liquidation of our entire portfolio in Russia so they couldn't grab our assets. And I thought that, that I was done with my people safe and the money safe. You know, that was the end of my adventure in Russia. It turned out that that was just the start of all my troubles. And, and what I discovered was about 18 months after I was expelled, 25 police officers raided my office in Moscow. I kept an office there. That was the only thing I kept and one secretary. And 25 more police officers raided the office of an American law firm that I used. And they were looking for the stamps, seals, and certificates for our investment holding companies, which at this point were emptied, but they didn't know that. And they found all these documents for our investment holding companies at the law firm. The police seized them. And then the next thing we know, we no longer own our investment holding companies. They had been fraudulently re-registered using documents seized by the police out of our name into the name of a man who had been convicted of manslaughter let out of jail early, presumably to put his name on these documents. That was the moment that I had a real panic because I had no economic stake in this situation, that my money was safe. But I figured if the police were working with murderers to steal my companies, God knows what else they might do on a formal legal front. And and I needed to stop this. And so I went out and I hired the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia, a young man, 35-year-old lawyer from an American law firm, and his name was Sergei Magnitsky. And Sergey was the one who I assigned to figure out what was going on and then try to stop it. So the Russian officials seized your companies, even though there was no assets in them. When they start doing this, they start doing some pretty incredible, outlandish, absurd things to complicate your life. Before we even get to Sergey, I mean, from a commercial standpoint, they're pulling all kinds of craziness on you. Just a couple of examples of some of those things they did. So Sergey went out and investigated, and he came back and said, I figured out what the scam was. And, and the scam had two, two objectives. He said the first objective was to steal all of my money, all my funds money. Because I, I was able to get all the money out before they did this, they completely failed in that first objective. He said, however, the second objective they did succeed in. And this is truly twisted what they did. When I was liquidating everything in Russia, um, we had a um, a profit of a billion dollars. We, we got a, a billion dollars of profit. And I paid capital gains tax to the Russian government of $230 million. And what Sergei had discovered was that this group of corrupt officials and organized criminals had taken our stolen companies, gone back to the tax authorities, and said to the tax authorities, there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing. These companies didn't earn a billion dollars, and in fact, they earned zero. And they came up with a complicated way of explaining that. And then they said, as a result, because these companies earned zero, the $230 million of taxes that was paid in the previous year was paid in error, and we'd like it back. They applied for a $230 million tax refund on the 23rd of December, 2007. It was the largest tax refund request in Russian history, and it was approved and paid out the next day 
24th of December, Christmas Eve, no questions asked. The largest tax refund in the history of Russia. And you find this out, and this is clearly these thugs stealing from the Russian treasury and by definition from the Russian people. You're pissed off. You're offended morally, as is Sergei, correct? I mean, I, I kind of assumed that they would have been given a mandate to steal from me, but to steal from their own government, it just seems so unbelievable. And, and, and particularly because Putin presents himself as some type of nationalist, some type of patriot. And here he was allowing his own country to get robbed of nearly a quarter of a billion dollars. And I, I thought he, if he would know about this, he would go ballistic. And so Sergei and I, we wrote together a criminal complaint documenting what had happened. And we filed it with the general prosecutor of Russia, the head of the Russian State Investigative Committee, the head of the Internal Affairs Department of the Interior Ministry, which is their, their anti-corruption unit, and everybody else. And we then sat back and waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. But it turned out, in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. Instead of arresting the people who stole the money, after Sergei testified against these people, the same people he testified against came to him, came to his home on the 24th of November, 2008, and they arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention, and then they began to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. Uh, they put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. Uh, they put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They'd move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers. And they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million and he did so on my instruction. And they figured, okay, here's a, uh, a lawyer who buys his Starbucks in the morning and he wears a suit and he goes to a, a nice fancy Western law firm and sits in a cubicle and does legal work, they figure a week in this horrible prison, and he'll do anything they say. And they completely misjudged Sergei Magnitsky. You know, he may have looked like a soft target, but he was one of the most principled people I've ever met. And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was much more painful and awful than the physical abuse that he was suffering from. And he refused all of their overtures to do this. And as a result, his, his health got worse and worse. The torture got worse and worse. And he ended up about six months into this whole ordeal, um, losing about 40 pounds. He had terrible pains in his stomach and he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. About a week before the operation, again, these people came to him and again, asked him to sign a false confession. Again, he refused. And in retaliation, they abruptly moved him from a prison that had a hospital to a maximum security prison called Butyrka, considered to be one of the roughest prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, they had no proper medical facilities at Butyrka. And there his health completely broke down and went into a terrible downward spiral. He was in constant agonizing pain. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different formal requests for medical attention to every different branch of the criminal justice system. Every branch of the criminal justice system either ignored or denied in writing his um, desperate requests for medical attention. 
And on the night of November 16, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky's body could no longer hold out. He went into critical condition. On that night, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. They put him in an ambulance. They sent him to a different prison that had a medical wing. But when he arrived at this different prison, instead of putting him in the, emer- in the emergency room, uh, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed. And eight riot guards came into the cell and beat Sergei Magnitsky until he died. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. That was November 16th, 2009. You had tried to get Sergei to leave Russia before he was arrested. I did. He was not the only one they were going after. We had other lawyers working on the team, and they tried to arrest lots of people on our team. And I organized an evacuation of our lawyers. And I asked Sergei to leave along with everybody else. And he could have. He, would, he could have left Russia. But he was such an idealist about Russia and such a, um, so convinced that he had not done anything wrong. And so why, why should he worry about being arrested? It just didn't, it didn't, didn't even occur to him that they could frame him for a fake crime and do these terrible things. And so he, was, he said, no, I'm not leaving. And he, he stubbornly stayed. And he stubbornly went about this um, really sort of righteous work of exposing these criminals who were stealing from his country. And for that, he paid with his life. All these months he's being held, you're sitting in London. How are you, what's your day like? How are you sleeping? And what are you trying to do during this time to, to get him free? Well, I'm not sleeping very well at all. I mean, I couldn't, I felt ter- terrible that I was sleeping in a bed and he was in a, you know, some kind of horrible cot in a prison cell. And, you know, the worst was like when I was taking a hot shower, I could, he had no hot water in the prison. It was just horrible. And I tried to do everything within my power to put pressure on Russia to get him out. We went to the, he was a lawyer, went to the International Bar Association and the UK Law Society, wrote letters. We went to the Council of Europe, which is this international human rights um, government body in Strasbourg, France, who did an investigation into his incarceration. We got newspaper articles written about him. But the, the, the Russians were absolutely unmoved by anything. No, there was no external pressure that I could apply. And it was very horrible to feel so, to have him under such, in such a bad situation and to feel so helpless that everything I did had no impact. In fact, every time you tried a new tactic, they doubled down, it seems like. Well, they've always been that way, and, and even more so with him. I mean, so one of the things he did from prison, which was truly remarkable, was that every time they did something terrible to him, he wrote it down in the form of a criminal complaint describing who did what to him, where, how, and when. And every month or so, he would give a stack of these complaints to his lawyer who would file them, and we would get copies of them. They would always reject his complaints, but... It, he did something truly unique, which changed the sort of course of history, really, which was by getting all these things out of there and get us having copies, we had the most well-documented case of human rights abuses come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And because of that documentation, because of his words, because of his effective cry from the grave, his death sent shockwaves through the Russia and through the world, which are still still being sent today. I have a question written down that, you know, it's almost... I feel feel a bit of a cliche asking it, but after something like this happens, how do you soldier on? Well, I soldier on out of righteous indignation. Sergei Magnitsky was killed 
because he was my lawyer. He was killed because he worked for me. If he hadn't been my lawyer, he would be alive. And so I feel a very enormous sense of responsibility for what happened to him. And that sense of responsibility, that guilt, has driven me for nearly a decade now to put aside everything else I'm doing in my life and going after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. The most identifiable result that you've, through no small amount of effort, helped bring to fruition is the Magnitsky Act. So the Magnitsky Act is really the result of the fact that there was total cover-up in Russia. Vladimir Putin and his regime circled the wagons after this murder. Um, They exonerated everybody involved. They gave promotions of state honors to some of the people who were most complicit. And in the most shocking miscarriage of justice, three years after they murdered Sergei Magnitsky, they put him on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. And me, as his, they put me on trial as his co-defendant. Found us both guilty. Not, nothing more they could do to him after killing him. They sentenced me to nine years in a Russian prison camp in absentia. It became obvious there was no chance of justice inside of Russia. So we said, how do we get justice outside of Russia? And that's when I had this great idea, which was that the people who did this to Sergei did it for money. They did it for $230 million of money. And that $230 million, they do not keep in Russia because as easy as they stole it, it could be stolen from them. They keep that money in London and New York and Paris and Geneva. Mm-hmm. It's in their girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan and their wives to Miami. It's in their kids to boarding school in England and their parents to Harley Street doctors. And I said to myself, if we can't get justice for these people in Russia, the one thing we could do is cut them off from the West, freeze their assets and ban their travel. And so I took this idea to Washington and I met with two senators in Washington, a Democratic senator from Maryland named Benjamin Cardin and a Republican senator from Arizona, John McCain. I told them the story, which I've just shared with you. I said, can we ban their visas and freeze their assets? And they said, yes. That became known as the Magnitsky Act. And it started out just being applied to the people who killed Sergei. And then it broadened out to apply to all human rights abusers in Russia. And in Washington, where people can't really agree on anything, this is the one thing they could agree on, that Russian torturers and murderers shouldn't come to America. And it passed the Senate 92 to 4 in November of 2012, passed the House of Representatives with 89%. And it became a federal law under President Obama on the 14th of December 2012. With no small amount of political negotiation and wrangling on your part and the part of the Friends of the Bill. Yeah, it's it's an unbelievable, unbelievable uh, outcome that we succeeded in getting a law passed. I was probably took 20 trips to Washington. The amount of of dysfunction, and it wasn't because of uh, people in Congress, but at the time, Obama was trying to reset relations with Russia, and he was trying to do everything possible to stop the Magnitsky Act. And it was only through the power of the legislative branch of government that we succeeded. And we did succeed. And and I would argue that getting a law passed in America is more improbable than winning the lottery. But this was the human rights lottery and we won it big. Sergei Magnitsky won it big because his name is now forever on a piece of legislation which ends impunity And it turns out it doesn't just end impunity in Russia. After the law was passed, Putin went out of his mind 
with anger and, and he banned adoption of Russian orphans by American families. He, he made repealing the Magnitsky Act his single largest priority and he didn't succeed. And in fact, in 2016, the Magnitsky Act went global. The same senators passed the global Magnitsky Act and, and he didn't succeed in stopping it elsewhere because there's now six countries in the world that have global Magnitsky Acts, the US, Canada, Britain, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And we're now working on a EU Magnitsky Act. This is really a, an amazing legacy for Sergei Magnitsky. And hopefully this legacy by creating really devastating financial consequences for torturers and murderers and kleptocrats will um, stop people or dissuade or create disincentives for them to kill in the future. And hopefully that will be Sergei Magnitsky's memory is having saved lives through his own sacrifice. The stories in the book, the, the anecdotes from the business, from raising money, investing money, the outcomes, earning money, losing money, then through Sergei's trials and the lawmaking are phenomenal. But I want to know where this has left you. I was hiking in um, San Diego, in the hills over San Diego this week, and all of a sudden I heard the, the very distinct rattle of a rattlesnake just a couple of feet to my left. And I realized I was on his territory. And I wonder... At what point did you hear that rattle of Putin and did you think about bailing? And what's it like to know that that rattlesnake knows your name today? The natural reaction when you end up in a conflict with Vladimir Putin or the Russian Federation is to go to ground, shut up and, and disappear and hope that it all goes away. Every single person, every single wise person that I, I ever have met told me to do that. And I understood intuitively that I should do just the opposite that if you're insignificant, if you're not on the radar screen, they will kill you. And so I've done just the opposite, which is instead of disappearing and withdrawing, I've gone forward and attacked them head on. And it's something so unusual, they don't even know what to do with that. It's completely outside their normal outcome. And I would argue that, uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I'm still alive 10 years after this whole thing happened. And I would argue that because I've been a contrarian in my approach to fighting with the Russians, that that's the case. Do you feel safe today? No, not at all. They, I've been threatened with death, kidnapping. They've issued seven Interpol arrest warrants for me. They've come to the British government 12 times for mutual legal assistance and extradition. They've sued me. They've, they've sentenced me twice in Russia um, to uh, 18 years in prison. They've uh, accused me of murdering Sergei Magnitsky and murdering multiple other people. They made movies about me. They've sued me for libel, for fraud, for all sorts of stuff. There's like probably 250 people working inside the apparatus of the Russian government trying to destroy me right now. Good God. And you've lost friendships in most of your business? Is there, is there a hermitage capital still? No, I, I stopped being a businessman and I'm a full-time human rights activist now. I, uh, there is no way that I could do this without a full dedication to the task at hand. And so I've given up business entirely and, and I have lost a lot of friends, but what I discovered, I also made a lot of friends. I've discovered that a lot of my business friends were fair weather friends. They were, you know, if I I was, I would, you know, being friend friendly with me is um, not a very profitable venture (laughs) if you have anything to do with Russia. And so I've kept a few deep friendships and I've, uh, for those friendships, I'm very grateful. 
most of the people I knew in the business world, I don't talk to anymore. But I've discovered a whole new set of people who are, you know, freedom fighters and activists and brave men and women who take on dictators and governments and murderers. And, and I feel much happier with my circles and my day-to-day life than I ever did as a businessman. I guess I'll cancel my live podcast recording in Moscow after we publish this one then. <laughs> Bill, just a couple more questions. I appreciate your time. I can't talk to you without asking you about your thoughts on the current U.S.-Russia relationship. Well, um, I'm one of the, you know, probably 5,000 people in the world who's actually read the Mueller report cover to cover. And I encourage everybody who's listening to this to actually do that. It's the most damning document I've ever seen. It completely and absolutely convicts the Russians in manipulating and attempting to and succeeding in manipulating the outcome of the U.S. political process in 2016. It also describes in absolutely granular detail a bunch of completely dishonest, unpleasant, uh, haphazard characters who worked for the Trump campaign who were desperately trying to collude with Russia. It then describes a bunch of dishonest, unpleasant losers from Russia who are desperately trying to collude with the Trump campaign. And the report concludes that they were they all sort of missed each other in midair. However, everybody on all different sides lied about it completely and absolutely at every stage of the game, up and down the, the, the ladder, right up to the president of the United States. That's what the Mueller report says. <laughs> not, not, not the way Bill Barr has presented it. So what do you think Russia is trying to accomplish in the U.S.? And in the UK and elsewhere where they're meddling in other people's elections. It's very simple. Russia will never rise to the level of the West. They have an economy the size of the state of New York, which is shrinking. They have a military budget, which is 90% less than the US military budget. And of that 90% less, of that 10%, 80% of it is stolen through corruption. The only way that they could ever compete on the world stage is to bring all of us down to their level. And they're trying to create chaos, division, so discord every place they can in every way they can. And they're doing it in an asymmetric way using cheap tools that are available to them right now until the world of technology is properly regulated and not a free-for-all allowing Russian gangsters to, to sow discord wherever they go. What will happen to the people of Russia? Nothing good. Putin is a kleptocrat. I, I estimate he's the richest man in the world. He's worth $200 billion. The people around him have stolen, together with his money, stolen a trillion dollars from the Russian people. All that money is being kept offshore, it's been laundered offshore. The Russian people have no medicine, no healthcare, no hospitals, no schools, no, everything is completely sucked dry in Russia. And most people have a miserable life. And the, the angrier they get, the more crazy Putin gets in terms of repressing them and in terms of creating foreign enemies. It's not gonna get better it's only going to get worse. So there's a rumor that Red Notice is going to be made into a movie. Do we have any breaking news on that front today? No breaking news today, but watch this space. (laughs) Bill, thank you so much for your time. The book is called Red Notice. Thank you to our guest, Bill Browder, calling in from London. Thanks a whole bunch, Bill. Have a great day. Thank you for your interest and a great interview. And thank you. Thank you very much, Bill Browder. I really appreciate your time. And I greatly admire the work that you're doing to honor Sergey and his family. I clearly am a fanboy, but this book, Red Notice, is a must-read. You'll learn a whole bunch. It's very interesting and entertaining and tragic, of course, but it's a must-read, and you can find links in the show notes to purchase it 
Or hell, just go borrow it from a library. Whatever. Read it. It's good to be reminded that there is still evil in the world and that money still drives a lot of people to do terrible, terrible things. Okay, folks, if you liked this interview, please do me a favor and share it with your friends. Post it on social. Email it to someone else who's going to find it to be compelling. And if you don't find this story compelling, well, you're just not a very interesting person. I'm sorry. You need to do some reflection. But do share it. Do rate us on the application on which you are listening. Write a review. Say nice things. I'm working hard. We're working hard over here. Hope you're benefiting. Have a great day.